want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Um, I attended Dave Kettles' small group on uh, Wednesday evening, and uh, he said your Bible should just fall there now. Um, so I hope it does. hope when you open it just lands in uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3. We're looking at verse 17 to 19 this morning. It will be up on the board, but um, always like you to engage if you've got your Bibles with you. And before we read it, I think it's helpful to recap the section. Paul is encouraging us to go after heavenly reward with all that we have while here on earth. And he likens this Christian journey to that of a runner racing towards a finish line with eyes on the prize and opening stride as he gets closer to the finish to finish as strong as he can. And he says that those of us who are mature think this way. They focus on knowing Christ more and receiving honor from him for how they've run. The mature think this way. They focus on Christ more. They want to know him more And they want the honor that he will give to those who run well for him. That is mature thinking. They don't hang out, as Bryce said last week, at the comfortable drinking stations. No, they press on with all that they have, straining to get the prize. A couple of thoughts from last week's sermon that I've been chewing on this week. Bryce said, If we are to run well, we must not rest until we are finished. And he qualified that correctly with, we must rest from our works to receive salvation because Christ has perfected that. I want to say that again because it's important you get that. We must rest from our works to receive salvation because Christ has already perfected and finished that. That you rest from. You're no longer trying to get saved. Christ did all of that. You need to rest from that. If you are trying to work towards that, then you don't have Christ. Because the only way to receive him is to reject human effort. Okay? We can't rely on human effort if we're going to receive him. But after you have received him, after you have rejected your human effort, and you've received Christ and what he has done for you on the cross, then there are good works prepared for you in advance by God that he wants you to do for him. And that you must never rest from until you get to glory. And that's why there's no standing around at the comfortable drinking stations for us. We press on and we give all that we have to get the heavenly reward that Christ is preparing for us. He also said that as we mature in our faith, God reveals even more areas of immaturity which I was greatly encouraged by. Friends, you are on track if God is putting his finger on areas of immaturity in you and you are willing to work with him on that. That's how you grow in your faith. That's how you attain more of Christ. We must hold on to what we have attained and be encouraged that as we do that, we will be able to attain even more. It's con you can gain more in Christ when you look back and see this is what I've already gained. You hold on to that and that encourages you as you keep going. You want to attain more of Christ. You run wholeheartedly in the right direction to get even more of Him. But as much as we are encouraged to be single-minded, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on towards what is coming, Paul also knows that we don't run alone. So he loves, we spoke about this on Wednesday night, he loves uh, saying one thing and then saying another thing almost paradoxically afterwards. In a way, he's been saying, forget everything around you and run single-mindedly towards a goal. Don't let anything distract you. Don't let people or anything get in your way. But now he's going to say this morning as we read the text, you need people around you. We can't run alone. We run together, and we need examples of how to run, which will help us run well. We need people around us and in front of us. And God graciously provides those people. The title of the sermon 
this morning is an example to follow. And let's read the text together. In verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. My first point this morning is that we need godly examples to follow. Paul starts with this beautiful word, brothers. So he comes alongside when he says brothers, before he goes out in front. He is in front, okay? He is the apostle. Um, he is running after Christ with all that he's got. He's not teaching you something he's not doing. He is living this that he teaches. But for a moment, he'll come alongside you, as he does earlier in the chapter, to say, I'm not there yet, just like you. None of us are there yet, and neither am I. Now he's coming alongside again to say, brothers, and that word's important because it reminds us that he is just like us which makes it easier to receive the next part. Be like me. Watch me. Do what I do. It sounds arrogant and puffed up, but it's not. Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul is saying, follow me as I follow Christ. If he's saying, follow me in any other capacity outside of that, then it is arrogance and we shouldn't do any of it. But if... He is following Christ and setting a great example of how to do that. Then he can say, look at me, watch me, do what I do, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We see him be more overt in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, it's on the screen, I hope, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Don't just do what I do because I'm Paul and I like being Paul. I'm trying to imitate Christ, to watch him, observe him, be like him, and uh, set an example for you that you can follow. And I am doing that, so be like me. Someone once said, we need Jesus with skin on. And Paul says then, look at me. We need Jesus with skin on to help us see how we're meant to live. And Paul's saying, look at me. It's an incredible statement. I'm not just telling you what to do, I'm showing you. I live like this. If I tell you to set your mind on things above, it's because I set my mind on things above. If I tell you to make Christ your greatest ambition, it's because that's what I do. I make Christ my greatest ambition. If you need some flesh on that, then look at me and do what I do. Wow. It's an incredible thing to say. I wonder this morning, as I stand here, if I can say it to you. You need it. You don't need a preaching team that tells you the right things to do and isn't living it. You need real-time examples of what is being taught. You don't just need to hear what you should do. You need to see it. And as a teaching team, we can just teach the right things. We can't just teach the right things. We have to do them so that you can see how to run. So I have to regularly assess my life and ask the question, and you have to do this this morning as well because you're not getting off lightly here. Because Paul's not the only example in the text. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those, so there's others, many, on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And I want to say to you, church, as much as I need to set an example to you 
you also are setting an example for those around you. And you have to ask this question. What in my life should people not imitate? And then ask God to give the grace to change that so that we can show people the way and not just tell them. That's a big question. What in my life, and I have to regularly ask it, should people not imitate? And then, if God shows me that, and I think he will, Lord, give me the grace to change so that I can show people the way and not just tell them. And that's why I'm grateful that he opens with this word, brothers. Because there's a temptation for me. I'm tempted to say, this is the Apostle Paul. Of course he can say, follow me. Okay? But brothers reminds me that it's not just Paul that sets that example. Even though I can say to myself, I'm not on his level, there are others. And he will say in the text, as I pointed to you, look out for the others who carry the same example we carry. I am one of those others. And so are you. And I'm encouraged when Paul says brothers because it reminds me, if he can do it, I can do it. He's not the only godly example. And now there are those who God has placed around us to help us that we can look to. In my life, it's our staff team. God has placed me. This is the people I see the most. I see my family. I see the work staff team. Matt, Bryce, Mark, Nikki, Debbie, Sarah, Anita. These are godly examples around me of how to follow Christ. And I look at them, and I learn from them. Are they perfect? None of them are perfect. They can't be. And neither is Paul, which is why he says, I'm not there yet. But still, I run after Christ with all I have, and I want you to be like me. We cannot do Christianity alone, friends. Whenever you... Well done on being here this morning. Okay? In the sense that you get, you're not meant to be doing this thing on your own. That's why we come. If you're wondering, why do people come to church? Um, we come here to gather together to worship Christ and to know Him more. But someone might argue, I can do that from home, behind a YouTube desk. And you can, but not in the sense of community and pushing each other on and examples, which is part of what's in God's Word. So if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to follow all of God's Word, and God's Word tells you to do this. We can't do Christianity alone, friends. We need church. And I want to say, I think you need small group, because some of you get just this church example, but you might get a bit of an example from me in a, in a talk where I have to be a stage presence. So are you really getting an example from me? Um, and you might have a few conversations with one another, but a much healthier space to learn from one another is in a small group during the week. But the challenge with that is it's sacrificial because it requires a night out. It requires planning. It requires effort. And I am visiting small groups. So I, I'm speaking not just from one context. I'm speaking from many small group contexts. Most small groups I visit, the leader faces the challenge of the weekly excuse run. That usually starts at about half of six, half an hour before the meeting starts. Oh, I can't make it tonight because of this, this. I can't make it tonight because of this, this. We are so good at not making these weekly meetings, which are actually for our good and our benefit, and we've got some great reasons. And I want to ask you, even if you're in a small group, when was the last time you were there? And if you're not in a small group, how long will you leave off an aspect of this Christian life that is there for your good, for your benefit, for what we are speaking about this morning, where you will be surrounded by people who are godly examples and you can learn from one another and they also can learn from you. We need to see how a godly person handles adversity. We need to see how a godly person handles pain, disappointment, success, do you have godly examples around you? And are you a godly example to others?
If not, what can you change to be that? Because we need it. We need it. I visited the Kruger a few years ago. My father-in-law won uh, a prize, and we all got to go to a private game lodge and private game drives. Wonderful experience. Value of 30,000 bucks. Okay? Uh, just a tangent. Sometimes those emails that say you want something work. That's what happened. He received an email, said you want something. He actually opened it, and it was true. We had a, so the scam artists are loving me this morning because everyone's going to go back to and check through their, their, their email documents. But that's what happened. He responded to one of those, and we had this wonderful holiday. On one of the game drives, the, um, and these guys were exceptional. You realize, you think you're good at finding animals, but when you're with the experts, without binoculars, they will stop, and they're good at that. They never, I'm trying to do this with my kids. When we go to a game park, I want them to find the animals, so I'll stop the car. And I don't want to be, hey, look, 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 good me. I found this thing. I want to see if they can find it. And my kids are useless. They can't find anything. So in the end, we still have to, to uh, point out, out to, we dro almost drove into an elephant, and, and Seb didn't see it. Okay, and um, so this guy stops, and you've got to look out there, and somewhere far away, even with binoculars, there's a leopard, and he knows it, because he knows this area, and he's been there, and um, he can help. One of the stories he shared, I've never forgotten it, and it applies perfectly to this point. He said, we had some problems with some young male elephants. There's a group of young male ele elephants doing exactly what young uh, male humans who get together do. They were rowdy, raucous, having a blast. And what they would do was they would uh, knock over all the trees because they thought it was funny. But the trees provide their fruit and food and the food of other animals. So they're actually like causing long-term destruction to themselves and others, but they're blissfully unaware of it as they enjoy life. And you know how they fixed it? They took a senior male elephant, one, and placed him in that group. And immediately, the young male elephants stopped doing those silly things. Because they had someone to look at who didn't do that, who set an example for them, and they followed. That's what stopped it. And if they need examples around them to help them see the right way to live as an elephant in a game park, that is, I think, a perfect example of you and I needing godly examples around us, in front of us, to help us. If we will watch them and want to be like them, they can help a lot with some of the issues we maybe thought in our immaturity weren't big problems. You need that too. My second point this morning is, so we've got Paul saying, look at me, be like me. I'm a godly example, and there are many other godly examples. Be like them too. But the second thing he's saying to us is there are also many people who are ungodly examples around us. And we need to be aware of them. This is what he says in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he's just said, church, look at me, imitate me, be like me, be like the others who walk in the same example we've set for you. Why? For many walk as enemies of the cross. You will easily find people, ungodly examples, to distract you, to cause you to walk further away from Christ. We've got to be aware that they're there and they can influence us. So as much as you need examples to follow, be careful which ones you follow because Paul warns us that there are many who walk as enemies of the cross. Now, it's interesting that Paul does not seem to see a middle ground here. Okay? I want you to pay attention there because there's a temptation in us as Christians to look for a middle ground. So you look at Paul and you go, jeepers, that's extreme. I don't know if I can be like that. And you're hoping there's a middle ground where you can 
not be an enemy of the cross of Christ. You don't want to be that either. But you're not sure you can be like Paul. So hopefully there's somewhere in the middle where we can still hold to Christ and not quite be like Paul. And there's no middle ground offered here. Paul is saying this. His life is what a Christian walk looks like. You want to know what a Christian walk looks like? Paul's saying, look at me. This is what it looks like. There is no Christian light version. And if this feels too binary for you, then I would suggest that it is very much in line with other examples in Scripture. This is just like Moses standing before Israel in Deuteronomy. I'm going to have these scriptures because I think this is a point I need to convince you of. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 to 20, listen to what Moses says to Israel. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Or how about Joshua, before Israel, with a similar line in Joshua 24:15? And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in those land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or Elijah on Carmel saying in 1 Kings 18 to 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. God's people have historically been good at finding a middle ground when it wasn't offered. Or how about Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 30, saying, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, Listen to Paul here. This is God's word written for us. It is right for the believer to run after Christ with all they have. That is the right Christian response and the right way for the Christian to live. Run after Christ with all that you have. That is right. There is no other way to grow in your faith, and standing still is not an option available to us. We are either moving closer towards Christ, or we are moving away from Him, this is why Paul says, be like me, don't be like them. No middle ground is offered because none exists. And my final point this morning is we then, therefore, can learn from the good examples around us and we can also learn from the bad examples. And that's what he does in the verse 19. He's going to teach you things about the bad examples that we can uh, use to warn us. Just because we must avoid being like the many ungodly examples around us doesn't mean there is nothing we can learn from them. This is what the psalmist does in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a prayer from a person struggling with life. And the whole psalm, and I encourage you to go home and read the whole thing, because I'm only going to give you the gem at the end, because we don't have time to look at the whole thing. But the whole psalm is basically a rant in prayer, and hopefully you've done that. I've done that many times, of 
pointing to God all the things that's going wrong on the world, and especially amongst the wicked who seem to prosper in their wickedness while we suffer along. And at the end of Psalm 73, he, after spending much time pondering the success, it's a very long, it's quite a long psalm uh, of the wicked and feeling down about his life choices, he gets to verse 16. Psalm 73, verse 16 says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, not their present. I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Paul is saying the same thing over here. The very first thing he wants us to learn from the bad examples, he says, their end is destruction. The way of the world may seem right in the moment, but the first thing to learn is the trajectory is headed towards destruction. We've got to learn from their choices and consider where the trajectory is headed, not just the success we temporarily see them having. Be careful of following the example of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They may seem successful now compared to you, but their end is destruction. Our end is the opposite of that. I want you to get this. This is very important. What's easier? Someone, Dave asked this question. I'm gonna, I've had some time to think about it, so I'm going to answer it. Dave said in small group on Wednesday night, what's easier or what's more difficult, to live as a Christian and wrestle with sin and trying to overcome it, or to live with, uh, as an unbeliever who's got no hope for anything. Intellectually, you can enter both of those spaces and go, they both seem quite difficult. I think it's harder to be a Christian for these reasons. You have a sinful nature, okay, that is easy to give into. And when you give into it, you feel better. Now, it's a temporary feeling, and your end is going to be much worse than your current, but there is the space where people who have been Christians, and I want to put it in inverted commas because salvation is between God and them, but there are people who have professed Christianity who walk away and become enemies of the cross, and what their testimony is is, I'm happier now. I feel like I can be myself. And that makes perfect sense. That is the normal feeling when you stop trying to overcome your sinful nature and you then, for a while, embrace it and go, oh, wow, I can just in freedom go after all of these things I've, I've always wanted. I can follow the mantra of the culture of our age, be true to my true self. And you would feel it is good. And that is easier to give in to our sinful desires and live the way the world does. It's hard to go against the flesh and pursue Christ. It is hard. It's hard to go against the flesh and pursue Christ. So, don't consider the present and the comfort of that decision. Consider the trajectory. What is the end of your temporary comfort and feeling like you can go and do the things you want to do again and you don't have to feel guilt and shame over them? And so for the believer as well. Yes, there's temporary discomfort for us as we fight to overcome sin and flesh and pursue Christ. But let's consider the end. The second thing Paul says is that their God is their belly. That, did that mean that they were gluttonous? Um, maybe, but it's a metaphor for self. The center of self is right here. Okay, Their God is themselves, which is why you make decisions that are based on how you feel and make you happy. Okay? So their God is their belly. This teaching carries, this philosophy travels very well in 2023. We live in a world where the me gospel is probably the strongest of the false gospels, where something is true if it feels good to me. Following your heart trumps following Christ. Doing what feels good trumps the uncomfortable parts of God's word. Women can deal, I'm going to give real 
uncomfortable examples here, but women can deal with the inconvenience of unwanted pregnancy quite easily under the philosophy of I can do whatever I want with my own body. So it doesn't matter what God's like designing inside of your body according to Psalm 139, and that isn't your body, that's someone else's body there. The new way of dealing with the abortion problem, and I hear this often when I listen to the arguments online, is no one can tell me what I get to do with my own body. That is a justification to do what you want to do over something that's become an uncomfortable circumstance. Now, you might be sitting there and going, Mark, are there no uh, exceptions to that? And the nuance of a difficult conversation means there are terrible exceptions to this uh, choice. If someone's raped, uh, and now there's a baby in their tummy. What is it wrong for them to give up the baby? I don't want to get into the ins and outs of that. I'm just saying I get that there is difficult aspects to this question. But when we in general say we can just get rid of babies now because this is our body, well, that's a philosophy that fits in line with my God is me, my belly. Or what about... Gender is no longer God's choice. It's ours. God doesn't get to choose that. We do. Sexuality has more to do with what seems right to me than what the Bible says about it. And what the Bible says is irrelevant when your God is your belly. doesn't matter what God says. And so this is the world we live in where we have people whose philosophy is that their God is their belly and they are setting examples and their voices are loud and we sometimes even repeat the same mantras they say, which are harmful. Follow your heart is a terrible thing to say. But Disney's been telling it to us since we were little kids and we don't see that it's wrong. What about the Christians? So we looked in, so far I've looked at the bad examples and we've seen their end is destruction. We've seen that uh, their God is themselves. But what does that mean for the believer? What, what is the way of the believer in this? The believer is taught to crucify self. So other than God, it's much, it's the extreme version. It's not just don't make yourself God. You are taught to crucify yourself. To lose our lives that we may gain them. Self must be subservient to God and others. It's not how much do you love yourself and this is all about you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is love God with all you have and then love others as a way of showing that you love God. It doesn't speak about how much you're meant to love yourself. That's a Revlon advert that you've heard your whole life and gotten used to. Our God, who is our God? Our God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And our way is to love him more and be more like him, which means less of us. We serve others above ourselves because he showed us how to do that. We believe that God's word is true, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We believe that God has spoken on gender and sexuality and the value of all human life, born and unborn. We don't trust our hearts, especially when our heart is not aligned with God's ways, and we are able to acknowledge that this is unfortunately almost always true. And we often have to say no to self that we might grow and become more like Christ. And it's not an easy, comfortable life by any stretch. But God matters more because He is God and we are not. It is easier to follow the world's philosophy because the world's philosophy makes it about you, your comforts, your peace, your happiness, and centralize everything on that. It is difficult to turn away from self, point yourself towards Christ and go, some of this is going to be really uncomfortable as I shed myself over here and run after you, but I believe because you are God, that's what matters. Not me. You matter. And I'm trusting in the end. As much as this is uncomfortable now, you are not calling me to an eternity of discomfort. The opposite. 
You're calling me to temporary discomfort in the pursuit of you. For long-term, eternal gain. And that we're going to get to that in a moment. The world can't see past now. The next thing Paul says is they glory in their shame. This means that they are proud of the very things they should be ashamed of. If you glory in your shame, we spoke about this before, glory means to boast in. So if you glory in something, you're boasting in something. And if you're glorying in your shame, it means you're actually boasting in your shame. You are verbally, out loud, proud of the very thing you should be ashamed of. Shame is meant to make you cower and hide. The end of this trajectory is they end up overtly coming out and glorying and being proud of the very things they should be ashamed of. We live in a society where God's design for sex within marriage is almost completely disregarded. And disobedience is celebrated as sexual freedom. We, our world celebrates sexual freedom and particularly being disobedient to God's standards around marriage. Even Christians live and sleep together before marriage and think it's right. They glory in their shame. You will speak. This used to be hidden, by the way, guys. You don't know this because, and the older generation will tell you, but we've never been good at the sexual uh, obedience stuff. We just used to hide our disobedience better. Right? So if a girl fell pregnant and it was out of wedlock, she was sent away from the community to hide it because that's embarrassing for the family. This is a foreign thought in a day and age where we glory in our shame, where people will openly sit in a Bible study in a church, having driven there together, and talk about how they're living together before they're married. And they might even mention, and I've had it in a small group that I'm a part of, they talk about the way that they sleep together, and they're proud. There's no, like, what we're doing is wrong, and we've got to, like, maybe we're not going to stop it. Let's at least hide it. It's, it's overtly celebrated as being okay. Why does the world glory in shame? Because it's not shameful to them. Their consciences have been seared. They don't even feel bad about it anymore. What is the way of the believer? We glory in Christ. We embrace restrictions Christ places on us because we trust Him that His ways and His thoughts are higher than ours. We see the world's sexual freedom for what it is. Bondage again to self and rebellion against God. That's what the world's sexual freedom is. It's not freedom at all. It's bondage to themselves and it's rebellion against God. And the believer who's able to say no to those things in light of God's word and follow him, sees it for what it is. I do not want to be bound again to self. I met a guy who, after he got saved, he said to me, I ain't, I ain't going back to county. I'm aware I've come from prison, sinfully. And he would regularly say to himself whenever the enemy would tempt him with various things, I ain't going back to county. It was an American, if you're wondering why he spoke like that. Okay? I see it for what it is. And I'm not going to be bond, in bondage to myself again. I'm in the gospel becoming free from that. Okay? And I'm pursuing Christ and I'm shedding that stuff off. And my glory, what I'm proud about, is Christ. We are ashamed of shameful things. And that's right. If it's shameful, you should be ashamed. I should not be standing in front of you uh, proudly telling you about my old pornography addiction. I'm ashamed of that because it was awful and it kept me in bondage. And I will speak about it only in light of that Christ has set me free and it brings him glory to share that testimony. And I don't mind my reputation going down if he's going to go up. Because ultimately, we desire to live for Christ's glory, and we want, to be glo we want Him to be glorified in us by living in obedience to Him. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is I feel shame over the shameful things, and I should. And you know what the cross says to me? It says, I've defeated your shame. 
I've overcome it. You don't live in that. I've won. You get to come. You get to be with me. You get to feel forgiveness. You get to feel my grace. You belong to me. Owning that shame and taking it to the cross is much better than glorifying in that shame even though you wouldn't feel bad about it. Because you've reached a point where you can speak verbally about it in a prideful way. That is the way of the world. The last thing to learn from the world is that their minds are set on earthly things. They don't think about what comes next. Every decision is based on getting the most for self out of now because that's all they have. Everything is based on getting the most for self out of now because now is all they have. They live in fear. They don't like to admit it, but the way they live, it shows fear. They live in fear because everything they focus on is temporary and they feel responsible to protect it. Yet it remains out of their control. What a terrible space to live in. Everything now matters the most and it's up to me to protect it and yet I can't control any of that. They live, this is my strongest sentence that I think is sad. They live for the few years at the end of a hardworking life where the body is no longer young enough to enjoy the retirement they've built their lives upon. Think about that. They live for the few years at the end of a long, hard working life where the body is no longer young enough to enjoy the things you have built your life upon. I find that incredibly sad if this is all we have. The believer is thinking about heaven. They are living for heavenly reward. They spend more time storing up treasure that lasts than they do treasure that is fleeting and beyond their control to keep. They accept that they are pilgrims. I've lived my life as a pilgrim. A pilgrim is a traveler. And when you live as a traveler, you are living uncomfortably compared to others who are settling down. I have lived out of a bag, a kit bag, for years. I did not even unpack it to put it into a a standing still space because there was no point. That's what pilgrim means. You are always moving and on the go. You are never settling anywhere. Whose life is more comfortable? Of course, the one living in the mansion who's been there for the last 20 years and understands it perfectly. But we are not called to that. Our eternal final resting space destination is glory in heaven. And while we live here, we are going to be more uncomfortable than the uh, non-believers. But because we hold eternity in our minds, we accept that we are pilgrims. We accept we live more uncomfortably compared to the counterparts for now. But we also understand that in light of eternity, we win. Our way wins. So I'm not even looking at you going, people look at me and go, Mark, you, you, you know, you're not materialistically motivated. I'm not, but I also feel like I'm going to win all of that stuff more than you anyway. So if you were materialistically motivated, I would say to you, be like me. You're going to end up with more. But you can't get that because you live for now. You don't live for later. Because I know heaven's coming, I am okay with temporary discomfort. I can even embrace it. And there can be peace. There can be joy. Because ultimately, we are the ones who are winning at life. And we can see it. And that's why we want others to be like us. That's why we don't lord it over them and laugh at them and go, oh, enjoy hell when you get there. We are desperately living as examples, trying to tell people about Jesus because we know this is the thing that matters the most. And we don't want you to live in your comfortable sin. We want you to experience what we've come to experience. So in application, as I close, Paul sets two ways before us. We can be like him 
or like the world. There is no in-between. If you want to be like Christ, Paul sets a good example. This middle ground thing God's people always find and we seem to somehow find comfortable to live in, we've got to get rid of it because it's not the middle ground we think it is. It is a slow trajectory pulling us away from Christ and that should haunt us and worry us. So I've got some application questions. How is the denying of self going for you? And if you're unaware of it, that's telling. So if, when I say, if you're unaware of it, if you were denying yourself, your, yourself would let you know big time. Okay? So in, on Monday, uh, two Mondays time when we fast, there's zero chance you're going to fast, not eat the whole day, and not think once about how uncomfortable you are. Your body, the whole day, and probably more than it usually does, Okay? And then weird things will start happening where people start offering you free food. Okay? You will stop at the robot and instead of the beggar asking for something, he will give you food. <laughs> I've had this happen to me, not a beggar, but I stopped at a robot. Guy knocked on the window and I was like, no, 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 I don't give money. And then I realized he was holding food. I'm like, and I was hungry because I, wasn't, I was fasting. And so I unwound the window and almost grabbed it. I was like, is this free? He's like, yeah, sure, free. And then I remembered why it's happening. This is not free. This is myself feeling the discomfort of trying to do something God's asking me to do today. You cannot deny self and be unaware of it. If you're unaware of it, it probably means you're not denying yourself. So I ask the question, how is the denying of self going? And hopefully there's things you can think of where you go, yeah, there's that thing um, I feel like God's telling me to do and I do it. I don't like doing it. It would be easy if I didn't have to do it, but I do it because um, God's right. I don't like going to small group on Wednesday nights because it is uncomfortable because I've got to go through the rigmarole of putting the kids or bringing them with us or whatever it might be. But I do it every Wednesday, even amidst the, we get to the small group and the babies are all crying and I can't understand anything anyway. I do it because God's word says it's right and I want to grow and be like him so I can see an area in my life. I'm giving you a real-time example where I'm feeling a level of discomfort in the attempt to be obedient to Christ. That's an example of denying self. How is that going for you? And you'll be aware of it when it's happening. Is your mindset on earth or heaven? Can you point to evidence in your life that your mindset is on heaven? It's not, just a, it's not just something I think in my mind. Oh, yes, my mindset's on heaven. If I am thinking about heaven, the way I live on earth, there will be evidence to support that thinking. Is there evidence that your mindset is on heaven? And then pray about that. Ask God to shape that in you. If you're going, I'm not sure what that looks like, if I am too centralized on now, Lord, help me develop and maintain a mindset where I think about where I'm going. And I let that impact the decisions that I'm making here. Are there things in your life that you should be ashamed of and you're not? Have you drifted away from Christ and not even realized it? May the Lord place godly examples around us and give us the wisdom to imitate them. May we grow in our ability to crucify this flesh, deny ourselves, and follow Christ. May our minds be set on heaven, and may we glory in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Revelation for us. We thank you for the examples in your word. Real people who lived their lives for you. Who ran their race and finished it. And have become witnesses to us of how to live for you. 
We thank you for the call of Paul here to be more like him and to be wary over the many prevalent examples in this world around us who are drifting uh, to a destruction. And I pray, Lord, that as this church meditates on this word this week, that you would make them hungry for you and you would give them wisdom to find the people around them who love you with all they have. And that they would look to those people and seek to be like them. Give us the wisdom to notice the ways of this world and um, to be careful over them, to not adopt them without thinking. And Lord, we pray especially for these four things Paul mentioned at the end. May we be aware of their end. May we not be jealous over their present. May our God not be ourselves. May it be you, Lord. May our mindset be not on earth. May it be on, on heaven where we're going to be forever. And Lord, may we glory not in our shame, not in the sin we're not even thinking is sin anymore. Lord, may we glory in Christ and what he has achieved for us on the cross. Thank you that every one of our sins has been defeated. All of our shame has been overcome. And even as we are made aware of it, that song, Majesty, your grace has found me just as I am, empty-handed but alive in your hands. In that um, awareness of what we really are and what you've done for us, Lord, I pray that this week we would come to you and spend time at your feet and enjoy uh, the reality of your presence, the truth of your word, and that we would run this race looking to the examples you've placed around us. In Jesus' name, amen.